Today's reading is Mark 8, 1 through 10. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told his disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's my question for you today as we begin. What difference might it make if the God revealed in the Bible was extravagantly generous? Let me make it really concrete. What difference might it make to your future if you knew that your wealthy parents were going to pass on to you their entire estate and you're the only child? Would you think about your future? Would you think about uh, the possibilities that that money might provide for you? I would. What if God wants to be generous to us in in an extravagant, abundant way? Listen to Ephesians 1, uh, verse 11. You don't have to turn there. But it says, In him we have obtained, this is through Jesus, an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Then Paul says in verse 18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So on the one hand, he says that in Christ we have an inheritance, and then he flips right back around and he says, We are God's inheritance. We are God's inheritance. God got us as a result of the work of Jesus Christ. So this inheritance language is all shot through Paul's writing. Paul wants us to recognize that God is generous and that he wants us to know of his generosity. And so my question is, what difference might it make if God was extravagantly generous? So I want to finish this month as we're looking at this, this theme of taking a beautiful risk of seeing where God loves, see where, uh, where love might take us by looking at, at the generous love of God. So I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles. If you have a Bible, there's one, uh, a blue one, right underneath your seat. It's page 843. Page 843. And my approach is simply I want to look at the text, see how it might re- what it might reveal about God's love, and then I want to ask the so what question. So what difference might this make? By What difference might it make to let God love us in this way or love me in this way? What difference might it make in the way that we live or the way that I live? We're talking in this first, this first section about, uh, about the beautiful risk, about letting God love us. Before we talk about loving God or loving our neighbor, we have to first of all let God love us. And so we have to know God, and that's what we've been taking the time to do as we look at the Scripture 
So now that you're in Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus has been here before in the text that was just read to us. This is the second narrative, uh, the second feeding narrative in Mark's gospel. The first one is in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus uh, feeds at least 5,000 men, probably a, a crowd of up to, to 15,000. He takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000. And so it tells us that hunger and scarcity isn't a one-time experience. That it's something that's ongoing in Jesus' world. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't use symbolic gestures like we might see with celebrities who, who uh, get in front of a camera at Thanksgiving to be able to feed uh, the homeless or the poor. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus wants people to know that God is generous. He wants them to encounter the generous love of God. And so it says in verse 2 that he's moved with compassion with, by the condition of the crowd. He points out the need to the disciples, but he doesn't offer a plan. He doesn't tell them what to do, perhaps hoping that the disciples would recall the last time that this happened and what was provided. But the disciples see only scarcity, verse 4. His disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? They echo the cry against Moses in the wilderness in Exodus 16, where the people say, how are we going to find bread in the wilderness? The disciples see the seven loaves as a finite resource. They think, they say, there's not enough to go around. And this is the narrative of scarcity, okay? This is the narrative of scarcity. It creates a mindset that asks the question, how can I be generous when there's not enough? How can I be generous when there's not enough? And it's not limited to this incident in Mark chapter 8. It's not simply limited to this time period in which Jesus finds himself with the disciples and with this large crowd. Think about how this dominates our culture. Think about how this can dominate our lives. This narrative of scarcity. Think about the things that we fear we'll run out of. Jobs. Jobs with benefits. Affordable housing. Affordable health care. Good schools. Safe neighborhoods. Drugs to fight infectious diseases, clean water, energy, and the list goes on and on. Oh, money. Forgot that one. The scarcity mindset says there isn't enough. Therefore, I need to hold on to what I have. Even better, I need to hoard. I need to, to, to grab all that I can and, and pile it up in the event that I might need it, even if it might exclude others benefiting. And that pretty much governs our culture today. In other words, you can't afford to let go in a scarcity system. And so Jesus asked his disciples how much bread they have, and they answer seven loaves. This number is intended to cause the readers of Mark's gospel to recall the seven days that God spent creating the world. And what marks those seven days of creation? It's a world of abundance. It's a world of abundance. 
Not only does God call his creation into existence with just a word in Genesis 1 and 2, but he promises the continued abundance by commanding that his creation be fruitful and multiply. Twice he commands his creation, not just the human beings, but the creation itself, the birds, the fish, the trees, to be fruitful and multiply, promising in that command a world of abundance. That's the world that God started. It's also interesting in that creation narrative that that God rests. And the fact that he rests sets a pattern for people who are made in his image. Because in resting one and seven, we tell the world, we witness to the world that there is enough. We do not have to continue to perpetuate a frenetic lifestyle of continual work, chores, appointments, meetings, activities, in an effort to accumulate more stuff and more experiences. Resting one in seven is an act of resistance against the narrative of scarcity. Resting one in seven and not doing what everyone else is doing is an act of resistance against the narrative of scarcity that dominates our culture. It's a counter-narrative. So Mark uses four words to describe what Jesus does next in verse 6. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves. Having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. He took, he gave thanks, he broke, and he gave. We will hear that, those words again when Jesus is sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper. So we have an echo that is going to come down once again where Jesus sits before them and he breaks bread. He gives thanks. He gives to them. Again, an act of abundance. In his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, there will be abundant life that will be given to them and to the world through his act. It says in verse 8 that the people ate and were satisfied. The needs of the people are matched with the generosity of God. Jesus has put into practice the generosity of the Creator. It's as though Genesis 1 appears in Mark 8 and the world is made new again. But Mark adds... In verse 8, they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. The seven appears again. They end up with the same number as when they started. Seven loaves now end up with seven baskets of leftovers. No accident on Mark's part in noting this because the narrative of scarcity is challenged with the narrative of leftovers. The leftovers are a testimony to the generosity of God. So the antidote to the narrative of scarcity that so dominates our culture and so dominates our life is the generosity of God, that God is generous. God is generous. And so we answer the threat of scarcity with the trust in a God who's revealed himself to be generous. We trust in him as being generous. 
This is who He is. From creation where He provides abundance in, his, in creation to the new creation where He provides a perpetual feast. From beginning to end, God is marked by generosity. Abundant generosity. So now to the so what question. So what difference does it make to let God love me, love us, love you in this way? Walter Brueggemann says this, and I love this. He says, when Jesus was asked which was the greatest commandment, he replied with a trick answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you can't have just one. You need to have both. And the link that unites them is God's limitless generosity acknowledged and enacted. And he goes on to say, this in turn raises the question, what if one of the links between the Creator's generosity and our neighbor's needs is us? This community. He says, if that is not true, then scarcity rules and we are in sorry shape. But if it is, and if we believe it is, we can begin life anew as conduits of God's abundance. So here's my question. What might it look like for us to be conduits of God's abundance together? All right? That's a legitimate question. That's not a hypothetical one. What might it look like for us to be conduits of God's abundance together as a community? Now, this is where Christian imagination kicks in. By Christian, I mean that we're linked into, we're hooking our lives into a story that God has revealed about himself and what he's doing in the world. Creation to new creation. Abundance to abundance. The character of God is one who is generous and abundant. So we link ourselves into this narrative. That's Christian. The imagination part is asking ourselves, what might it look like for us to step into this abundance that God wants us to, to manifest in some creative and life-giving ways. That's the imagination part. And if anybody should be excelling in the area of imagination, it should be Christians. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because we're made in the image of God, because we've been raised with Christ, and because we know the end of the story is new creation, and we know that that story has broken into the present in Jesus' resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. So of all people, we should be the people who have the most robust imagination being applied to the world. I want to offer you some past examples of some people from this community that have used Christian imagination. New Hope Grief Support was launched out of this church, Sue Beanie. It became a nationwide, even international uh, uh, ministry for supporting people who've gone through grief. Hope for Long Beach was launched here. It eventually uh, morphed into Plant LB, which is a church planting uh, organization that's here in Long Beach, planting churches like crazy, doing a fantastic job. Home Forever was launched out of the Moors, and now other people have picked that up. John had to move, but he's continuing it as well. Uh, foster adoption advocacy. It's, uh, it's a national effort. 
and something that this church has been, has been very well known for. Love Gives kind of came out of that as well with a foster closet that serves people in our community. Uh, Ugandan Lambs was something in the past, but it was an orphan in- initiative that, uh, that emerged out of this church to help uh, a need over in Uganda. The Intellectual Virtues Academy, which is here on our campus, it's the LBUSD charter school, emerged out of uh, educators in this church really getting a vision for a different type of charter school. Uh, we love Long Beach. Scott Jones, who was doing this, or they just had an event yesterday. Scott was on staff here, on our youth staff, and he really has uh, emerged as someone who is a, a major player in Long Beach in terms of wanting to see real neighborhood connection, being, people being with each other, not simply doing things for others. Uh, Dandelion Ministries, uh, Alex Absalom, where he's catalyzing missional innovation that's, that's nationwide. Uh, Steelcraft is something that uh, Kim Gross has uh, recently uh, finally just launched, and most of you are aware of, of Steelcraft. Um, the Uptown Gazette landed on my doorstep. Yes, I do read these papers. <laughs> you guys all leave them out there and let them get water all over them, but I read them. Uh, Blair Cohn, who is the executive director of the Bixby Knowles Business Improvement Association, was giving his kind of state of the address uh, for Bixby Knowles, and I was reading his address. I've met, I've met uh, Blair. He's a, he's a great guy, um, and he really loves his community. But here's a quote about Steelcraft. He says, he praised new and innovative businesses opening, including Steelcraft, a set of restaurants forged out of shipping containers. Steelcraft is the catalyst of Long Beach Boulevard, Cohn said. It's the new energy. He sees what Steelcraft has done as being the key to revitalizing Long Beach Boulevard. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Long Beach uh, Unified School District has used our campus. Again, the vision of saying, how do we partner together? How do we utilize this, this to, to be able to connect with people and to, and to serve and have a greater presence in our community? Uh, the Elm property, we were originally trying to, to create a, a sale of the Elm property to create affordable housing in Long Beach, which Long Beach desperately needs. And, uh, and is aware that they need it. And so we wanted to be a player in that. There's been many other people that have done a lot of things. We have authors, we have artists, we have people that have opened up galleries. There's so many things. So anytime I do a list of this, I know that I've missed people. We have people that are overseas that are doing business stuff that is bringing flourishing. There's so much that has emerged out of this community of grace, people that have used creative imagination and have become innovators. And all these involved risk which means people being open to the possibility of failing. But what does 2 Peter 1.3 say? It says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Do you see what that's saying? If you know what God is doing and you know who he is, you also know that he's given you everything that you need to step into life and to follow him with creative imagination. That there is no such thing as failure. You're doing a risk with what God has given to you to take risks to do. So there is no real failure. So what's next? What's next? Okay, I'm going to be very specific here. All right, here's how I see my role in this community. I see my role as offering to you a resource to point you to the character and to the story of God. But I cannot be the one who innovates. 
I'm not the innovator because I'm not out there doing the things that you all are doing. You all are the innovators. You're the designers. And too often we come into the church and we think that, oh, well, the guy that's the pastor, he's the one supposed to be telling, having all the ideas and telling us what to do, and then we decide if we want to do them or not. No. I am supposed to give you the character of God, the story of God, so that it's compelling enough to cause you to say, I want to innovate. I want to use my imagination. I want to do it with others in the community that we have things that are going on out in the world, we see possibilities, we want to be the designers, we want to try something. So essentially, I want, to, I want you to know that I don't want to be in the way. I don't want to control, nor do I want to give permission. Is that clear? Does that make sense? I don't want to control, and I don't want to give permission. I want to see innovators innovate, people that can design to design, and more things emerge from this community because I think it's possible. So the question I can, that comes back to me occasionally, uh, it's usually negative, so I'll go ahead and say it, uh, is I just don't know where this church is headed. I just don't know what, what, what the direction of this church is. Now here's my answer to that. You're the answer. You're the answer. Because you're the church. Right? I'm one part of the church. I am one, one member of the body. I'm like a toenail. Okay? You do need your toenails. But, you know, you don't usually get up thinking about them all the time. So we're the body together. So if you want to know where the church is headed, just turn and ask these people around you. Because they're the church. Where are they headed? What are they doing with their life? What is, what is firing up their imagination? Where are they taking risks for God? That's where the church is headed. It's with those people that are wanting to do that. Not with me. I provide the story. I point to the character of God. I pray for you. I meet with you. I encourage you. I talk about things where maybe the wheels are getting a little bit wobbly and things are falling off your life or whatever and maybe to help you get back up out of the ditch and get going again. But you're the innovators. You're the designers. You're the risk takers. You're the answer. I want to offer just real quickly a couple examples of innovation that came to me recently. This is, this is mind-blowing, okay? This is going on in, our, in the U.S., okay? Innovative things that churches are doing. In 1992, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, a large, predominantly African-American church in Dallas, began the Entrepreneurship Loyalist Program, ELP, a 26-week business incubation training program. The church partnered with Bank One of Dallas to be the primary source of business loans, but OCBF also set aside a loan pool from which the entrepreneurs could draw if they experienced cash flow issues during the initial phase of operation. Typically, these were loans of 60 to 90 days, the church also provided each business with a mentor consultant. In the first three years of the ELP, six new businesses were successfully launched. As per program guidelines, these ELP graduates then reinvested 1% of their bank loan back into the church's loan fund to help other entrepreneurs. That's amazing. Churches launching businesses through a loan program. Here's the second one. Another, creative way, another way creative churches are revising the use of their outreach dollars 
hear that, is in supporting individual development accounts, IDA programs. IDAs are matched savings accounts that enable low-income individuals to save toward future education expenses, capitalizing a small business, or purchasing their own home. This asset-building strategy for fighting poverty was first introduced in 1996 with the landmark federal welfare reform legislation. Since then, some 40 states have begun their own programs. Additionally, a number of private sector organizations have established their own IDA programs. Hardwick Ministries, a congregation in the Christian Reformed Church located in Holland, Michigan, operates an IDA program via its diaconal ministry, Neighbors Plus. Neighbors Plus is a separate nonprofit, but has a very close sister relationship with Harderwick, with the organization serving as the official diaconal arm of the church. Neighbors Plus IDA program offers participants a triple match. For every dollar saved, the ministry adds $3 more. Participants must complete a 12-week financial literacy course. They can save up to $1,000, thus earning a match of $3,000 for a total of $4,000 in savings to use towards education, home ownership, or business startup. If I had t- more time, I'd read you more examples. But that's some, that's some amazing stuff. That's some creative, innovative stuff that says we're going to step out of just doing the traditional thing that churches do. And we're going to do something to make the world a better place. So this is about moving very quickly from red ocean strategy to blue ocean strategy. Red ocean strategy is red because the waters are red because it's about copying and competing. And churches are notorious for copying and competing with each other. And that's red ocean strategy, and businesses do the same thing. The blue ocean strategy is about innovating where others are not. That's why it's blue ocean. Here's an example that you probably are familiar with, Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil was, is an is a organization that innovated in blue ocean. Whereas the circuses were, were going after children and basically dying off. Where is Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey today? They died last year, if you didn't keep track of that. They ended last year. But Cirque du Soleil has innovated because they went after adults and they went after big corporate clients who were able to pay big dollars to go see this. I was looking up some statistics last night about in less than 20 years... Cirque du Soleil achieved revenue levels that took Ringling over 100 years to attain because they innovated in that blue ocean strategy, with that blue ocean strategy. I'm suggesting to you that that's what the church is called to do, is to be blue ocean innovators. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I think that we have tremendous unrealized capacity in this church. I really do. I've had people tell me that this church punches above its weight class. That means that there's some wonderfully talented and gifted people here and people that are very sharp and people that together could do some amazing things. And I quite frankly think that's the next chapter of what God wants to do. He wants to unleash innovation beyond what we could ever dream of because It's about people coming together and taking risks, not asking me or the staff for permission or for the ideas. But any way that I can help or I can encourage or I can pray or whatever, I want to be be doing that. But I think it will emerge as we live out of this narrative of the fact that God is generous, he is abundantly generous, and we are his people. 
And we are called to mirror that to the world, to witness that to the world. Does that make sense? But it's up to us to begin to talk about that and to begin to stir that up and begin to to then say, okay, how do we do that together? Who wants to do that? Who wants to step up and who wants to lead? Who wants to try out the generous love of God? And there's no better way to then step into this communion table than with this theme of generosity because in Jesus we have this tangible reminder that because of what Jesus has done for us that we are people who partake in generous life together.